Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. It's time for a day in the life of this international school, what I came to call the Cradle of Elites. It operates as an entire community unto itself. If it weren't for cabin fever, you'd never have to leave. There's the dormitory, a building of five floors and thirty rooms. Foreign teachers, the royalty of this village, live in the large rooms at the end of the corridors. East-facing rooms are smaller for individuals. West-facing rooms are for the families. Chinese teachers have smaller studio apartments, and three of them live in each one, all sleeping together in a single room. They don't have kitchens. Another, larger dormitory houses the children and some teachers who oversee the kids during the night. What it's like in there is something of a mystery to me. I imagined a younger, more innocent version of my time in university halls, throwing wet tissues into the walls, staying up late chatting. Playing makeshift skittles with coke bottles and a satsuma, but the reality would be a far cry from this. The children were heavily managed, and only alone when they visited a toilet cubicle. They are awoken at six thirty and sent to bed thirteen jam-packed hours later. The school days of my youth, eight forty to three thirty p.m., would seem like a vacation, unthinkably lazy. I stroll into work at eight a.m. every morning, taking the grueling commute across the running track, past nine trees and up one flight of stairs. The worst morning the world over must be Monday, and it's no different here. On top of the tiredness and the readjustment after the weekend, Monday morning is time for the opening ceremony. Every Sunday evening, I pray for a morning monsoon so it gets cancelled, and sometimes my prayers are answered. If, however, the gods have been busy with other prayers, then by eight twenty we've all marched in lines down to the playing field, and we're standing bored on the football pitch of make-believe plastic grass. The kids have been home all weekend and arrived busily with their parents or on coaches from nearby towns and cities. The ceremony differs in length from week to week, but a long one would consist of two kids yabbering away with some inspirational learning spiel. And then reading out some names of children who have won awards in something. The children on the microphone speak Chinese, so I can't understand. But I admire their ability to talk fluently and confidently to the few hundred people here, even if what they say can't so much as raise an eyebrow amongst the audience. If I'm failing to convey excitement, it's because there isn't any. I stand there bored and sleepy, failing to understand the Chinese. Feeling bad for the kids who shuffle with pent-up energy and are constantly told to stand up straight, and not stray from the line. The Chinese teachers themselves chat to each other and take photos, setting a confusing example for the kids. The whole thing is strangely performative, a thing which people absent-mindedly make themselves present for, and robotically see through. We're also treated to the Chinese national anthem, called. March of the Volunteers is about standing up, and marching on. 
and refers to the volunteer armies who fought the Japanese. Pretty powerful stuff. In 1949, the victorious communists made it their national anthem. The words had been written 15 years earlier by the playwright Tian Han and the music by Nie R, written one year after that. R was a nickname. It means ears. Suitable name for any musician, but one especially suited to Nye, who had the princely talent of being able to move his ears independently of one another. It was a talent to win friends at parties, but alas, probably not one which will save you when the Japanese are charging over the hill. Both men were young victims of a dangerous Far Eastern world. The young musician's death occurred while swimming in Japan during a time when relations between the two countries were at a particularly low ebb. Letting your guard down for a quick dip in your enemy's pool probably isn't advised. But in fact, no evidence arose that Nye was killed. He may well have simply drowned. War or no war, swimming is dangerous and should always be done with a qualified lifeguard on duty. The playwright Tien's death was far more emblematic of post-Civil War China as the first flames of the Cultural Revolution began to lick in 1966, Tian, who was an avid revolutionary, was attacked. Five years earlier, he had written a play critical of Chairman Mao's policies called Xie Yao Huan. Criticism of communist governments in the 20th century has something of a bad reputation, and China is no different. But in 1956, the CCP decided to welcome criticism and different opinions channeled through arts and literature. The policy of letting a hundred flowers bloom and a hundred schools of thought contend is designed to promote the flourishing of the arts and the progress of science, Mao famously stated. Sweeter words have rarely been uttered, but within a year the sentiment had been reversed and those who'd taken advantage of this liberal olive branch were finding themselves face to face with judges, prison guards or executioners. I've enticed the snakes out of their caves, Mao cackled, making the whole thing appear to have been a bloody trick. Whether it was a trick is still an open question, as I understand. By 1961, when Tien wrote his critical play, criticism was again forbidden. Perhaps it was surprising that he remained free for another five years. When the Cultural Revolution struck, the Red Guards were eager for rightist blood wherever they could find it. Tien was sent to prison as a counter-revolutionary, where he died before the decade was over. The national anthem was duly changed to the propaganda song, The East is Red, which contained lyrics like, The East is red, the sun rises, from China appears Mao Zedong. Replacing the song's original, bucolically harmless words, sesame oil, cabbage hearts, Want to eat string beans, break off the tips. Tales like this would go through my head as I watched the saluting children belt out their national anthem. Before they start, six kids hold the flag and walk a small ceremonial distance to the pole. An instrumental piece of military drums and trumpet accompanies the raising of the flag which stops once it's fully up and happily flapping in the wind. Then the anthem begins, and the kids belt it out with much fervour. For me, nationalism in powerful countries is always unnerving. 
nationalism certainly has energy and can unite a broken people or express strength to a stronger adversary who is currently lording it over you. But when the country is already charging headstrong towards regional or global dominance, I look instead for signs of humility and restraint. Alas, I have no examples of such a thing here in the Middle Kingdom. Instead, powerful countries puff out their chests, and China is no exception. And it's only increased as Xi Jinping's reign has continued. Here he is addressing 70,000 people who had gathered in Beijing on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the CCP, telling them that the Chinese people will never allow any foreign forces to bully, oppress or enslave us. Whoever nurses delusions of doing that will crack their heads and spill blood on the Great Wall of Steel built from the flesh and blood of 1.4 billion Chinese people. It should be noted, however, that this isn't the same China as the one in which Tian was imprisoned. Xi Jinping's rallies may have tens of thousands of beaming devotees and helicopter fly-pasts, but in the second half of 1966, Mao Zedong had eight mass rallies in Tiananmen Square, often with more than a million red guards in the crowd. Tian was posthumously rehabilitated in the late 70s, and the notorious guard at his prison camp, the villainously named Kang Sheng, was posthumously condemned along with the other culprits of the age as Deng Xiaoping's new China sought to draw a line under its dark past. Whether the lengthening shadows that are coming to define Xi Jinping's leadership are a sign of the darkness returning more permanently is still an open question. The symbolism of the flag has also been reviewed, to forget the fundamental hostilities of the past and shed some of the class rhetoric that sits uncomfortably with China's cheeky wealth. The four small stars which now represent the unity of the people alongside the CCP's big star were originally symbols of the four classes remnant when the communists took over. The proletariat, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie and the patriotic capitalists. If anything, in the trivialities of the school day cements revolutionary China firmly in the past, it's the awards. During some assemblies, some kids will be awarded certificates of achievement. Perhaps Sarah is the best in class one or Jerry came first at a piano contest. As they ascend the steps to the podium, the song from the Magnificent Seven plays with gusto. And it's not just the school that uses this song for award ceremonies. I've heard it for awards in the local theatre and on TV. For all I know, Xi Jinping's presidency was inaugurated to the soundtrack of the great American Wild West. Imbued with confused patriotism, classes begin. If it's not Monday, then classes begin a little earlier, at 7.30. I start at 8.15, teaching in 40-minute blocks. The shyness of the kids melts away and a lingering crowd control problem begins to arise. I have four rules. Speak English. Hands up when you want to ask a question. Sit like a tree, a rule added at the behest of Chinese teachers who demand good posture. And be quiet. Naturally, the kids can't speak English, so they are compelled to follow the be quiet rule. If they need to say something and don't know the English, they have to ask, 
may I speak Chinese? 95% of the time the answer is yes, and they'll make some kind of observation to Yun or Qian, our Chinese co-teachers, which gets translated to me. It's usually a pretty good point about how my instructions for some classroom tasks don't make sense. After the second period, there's a 10-minute break, during which a measure of anarchy enters the proceedings. Mine and Kelly's classes blend into one in the hallway, and skipping roops and hula hoops come out. Arizona man's daughter, Louisa, charges around hugging everyone, and we adults, Kelly, Yun, and Qian, and I, have a little small talk, with the bitchy side of the conversation proving to be an exclusive indulgence of us foreigners, especially Kelly. Gentle instrumental versions of well-known Western songs ring out through the loudspeakers, like John Lennon's Imagine and Elton John's Daniel. At the start of the third period, the kids do so-called eye exercises, where, alongside Little Jingle, they rub parts of their face and head. It's supposed to fend off weakening eyes, an anxiety that parents commonly share. A number of students with obviously bad eyes suffered and squinted while parents refused to accept the weakness of short-sightedness. I have little faith that the eye exercises prevent the need for glasses, but... Any moment of meditative calm in these kids' busy day has to be healthy. At 11.20, and not a moment too soon, we break for lunch. As with all location changes, the kids line up and get ready to march. Attention! shouts the lead child. One, two! shout the rest. Hands up! Up! They cross their arms momentarily, a sign of readiness. Then off they go. The formality of the march soon descends into kids messing around again. And as we approach the canteen, shiny signs appear, fixed to pillars. They show students smiling, walking, eating and lining up. The captions below say things like, Taste every dish, whatever they like or not elegantly. The canteen caters for every meal except on Friday evening. A group of about ten ladies in white, with plastic gloves and wide smiles, dish up the food. If you're there early, you get hot food. If you're late, you get the extra fruit they're going to throw out. Which you choose depends on your priorities. Just steer clear of the middle portion when the canteen becomes a full-blown zoo. Lunch is not the place for dawdling. Within 12 minutes of setting down with their metal trays, the soup has been slurped and the rice scooped, and they're on their way back to class for reading or studying. On warm days, some classes might play outside for another 20 minutes. Everything is tightly monitored. The foreign teachers, that's us, are finished by 3pm, but Chinese classes continue until 7. There's a short break for dinner at 4.45. Before this, everyone marches back into the field for exercises. In the warm months, this is a rather cute choreographed dance which gets ever faster as the music speeds up. When it's colder, they run around the track in time to a running song, occasionally chanting yi, er, san, si, one, two, three, four. There is great merit in synchronicity, I noticed while watching the stern look on the teacher conducting this little chant. Or, if not synchronicity, then certainly conformity. It's this dedication which made the Beijing Olympics opening ceremony such a spectacle. It was simply a continuation of their school day exercises. To the sharp cries of a watching coach, students bounce, twirl and shake, steered like agile sheep, reprimanded like scruffy soldiers. They work for perfection. 
Watching nine-year-olds break their backs to perfect a dance routine and almost collapse when it concludes is kind of heartbreaking. For their efforts, they get their coach, one hand on his hip, the other cradling his chin, sighing in disappointment, and a lone foreigner on the terraces giving them a thumbs up. I once saw a group of ten boys with footballs, practising spinning them around their hips. Not one foot touched one ball. I suppose, if nothing else, their conformity with one another was non-conformity with the rest of the football-playing world, who tend to play football with their footballs. They did this for the duration of six songs on the loudspeaker, and then marched off again. Yet it's a long day for everyone except us. It was an autumnal Thursday and I was on the afternoon commute across the running track towards home where I spotted Mark outside the teacher's dormitory and wondered how he was fitting in to this comfy new life. He had patched things up with the management after his outburst during the first meeting but was apparently far from content, lamenting that his students could not speak English. Having been under the impression that this is what we were here to solve, this was not much of a revelation for me. But for Mark, this was clearly frustrating. He disappeared into the dorm, big backpack slung over his shoulder. He looked like a weary traveller who had just had his heart broken in some backwater dive. I looked over at the playing field. Yun was there with her class, 28 seven-year-olds making the most of a brief moment of uncoordinated play. They were running, singing, clapping, playing tag, doing handstands, and playing games with rules made up on the spot in a way that only kids can do. As I approached, they were doing Gangnam style. Young Sean's smile wider than the Yangtze River itself. Another got the idea of chasing me, and before I knew it, I was being hunted by 28 cheeky little ruffians, and we were all pegging it around the plastic grass, laughing with glee. Finally, they caught me and I got bundled. I spotted Arizona man and his Korean wife, Yong, who were watching their daughter play. And the man asked me about how she's getting on so far in my class. I told him that she struggles with paying attention, and her coordination isn't quite there yet for writing. Numbers too, they aren't really getting recognised. The man seemed to be carefully storing each concern in a different mental compartment in order to generate a more effective image of the problem. His eyes were lowered in thought as we slowly walked the running track. I paused allowing a moment for us to reflect on this tricky situation. Then Arizona man told me that he'd run a mile that day, which isn't bad because of the hurt foot he had since dropping that piano on it. Then he appraised me on the swelling and how he might be able to stop with the painkillers before too long. And that was that. I bid farewell to the man and his workhorse of a foot and went to play piano. Piano rooms, a good 20 of them, sit adjacent to the gymnasium. This is the place for indoor basketball and football. I shook my head in awe of the treats this place has. Everything except a swimming pool, a billiards room and fox hunting. Below the piano rooms was a small gym with a few training machines and a ping pong table. The other big building contains all the offices. If you walk past the finance office at the right time you can see parents lining up to pay their sums to the school. Prices range from 38,000 RMB per year for regular classes to 58,000 RMB per year for the creme de la creme program, which includes natively reared English teachers such as myself. 
That's about 40 grand for seven years. A mighty investment by county-level standards like Changshu. Any leftover cash appears to be spent in the foreign teacher's lounge, a garish room with huge sofas and golden upholstery to match the glamour and finesse of these exotic beings. Lamps still in their protective plastic wrapping hang on the wall, and the coffee is free. Next to that is the International Department Office, where all our dealings occur. Below here is a nice library, but I couldn't find any English books. Elsewhere is a cute reading room full of Dr. Seuss, a room full of model aeroplanes and delicate Chinese tea sets, a calligraphy room, a room full of zithers, which is a Chinese uh, traditional musical instrument, and dozens of others going up four more floors in a shape approximating a pyramid. It was impressive, even beautiful. When the night falls, the bell in the clock tower stops tolling. Children leave class at 7 and are in bed by 8.30. An eerie quiet comes over the school, punctured by the occasional screeches of female Chinese staff living together in cramped quarters. A balmy number of streetlights set the unused roads outside ablaze, and I imagine myself a perplexed bird looking down on the vacant streets, slicing up the fields. Thank you.